All right. Looks like it's about time to get started. Make sure that's open. All right. Well, we have a homework assignment coming up due next time. Um, as long as I get through what I think I will get through today, we'll be, on pretty good sh- we'll be in pretty good shape with that. I'll certainly be through all of it on Wednesday. So if there's some major reason that we have to delay, I could change it, but I'm expecting right now that homework two will be due uh, October 2nd. If you're turning in a paper copy, you have until 6 a.m. on the 3rd to submit it up on uh, D2L. And then next, the following week, uh, next week, uh, solar observations. I just want a copy of your data sheet again. So you can turn, just make a photocopy of it, turn that in on uh, Monday, or you can submit a photo of it. Submit a photo of it up on D2L is also perfectly fine. So I can take a look at those. And then we are right on schedule for the exam, which will be the 9th, uh, right before our uh, fall break. So we'll get that out of the way. That'll cover chapters 5, which we're done with. 6, which we have a little bit left, and then 15 and 16, which are a little bit shorter chapters uh, that we have to get through. We're going to get through on the sun. We'll get through a lot of that today. So that is coming up. The review quizzes, I just went through D2L and updated all the dates on those. Other assignments were fine, but the review quizzes, one of them had already closed. So I adjusted the the dates so you have until the exam starts to be able to take those uh, for the ones for chapters 5, 6, and 15 and 16. So there's three of them to take, and you do get that little bit of extra credit for doing them. So make sure you go in and take them at least once. Even if you only get a couple right, you still get a few tenths of a point extra credit, which certainly can't help. Uh, Exam otherwise will be just like the first one. So same breakdown in terms of number of questions, in terms of required essays, and everything else will be, uh, structure will be exactly the same. It'll just be covering, of course, the three different units here. So any questions on anything coming up before we... All righty. Well, let's go ahead and start with our picture for today then. Come on. Clear that. All right. Well, the picture is of one of the better-known constellations of the sky, in the sky. This is the constellation of Orion. It's one of the ones that usually if people tell me they can recognize a couple things in the sky, it's Big Dipper and Orion. Those are usually the couple of things that people can identify. So this is Orion as seen from Brazil. So if it doesn't look like the Orion you're used to seeing, there's a reason for that. That's, it's actually upside down a little bit. This is actually the top. What, you, what we would normally see is the top of Orion here. And this would be the bottom of Orion. There's the three stars in the belt and the sword uh, hanging up. And the reason is that you're now, if, if you're taking it from Brazil, and at least this part of Brazil is south of the equator. So if you think about the Earth as a globe, we're standing on this part of it instead of this part. So we're looking upside down. We're essentially standing on our, not standing on our heads, but where our feet are pointing upwards if you looked at us from space. So everything's going to look upside down. So further south you go, the more upside down things look. Orion is one of those constellations that's actually easily visible from both the northern and southern hemispheres. So it's one of the ones that stands out very well, and it's going to look a little bit different. We do see a couple of things to note. One is a couple of the brightest stars. Betelgeuse is one of the brighter stars in Orion, the reddish star here. 
Rigel, diagonally opposite, is the other really bright star in the constellation. Big color difference. One looks red, one looks blue. Remember what our last chapter told us. Really hot star, really cool star. This one's about half the temperature of our sun. This one's about two or three times the temperature of our sun. So one is much hotter, giving a lot of blue and ultraviolet light. The other is a lot cooler, giving off a lot of red and infrared light. The other thing that we'll see, and in fact, our, uh, once we get through the sun here in our next unit, we'll be talking about stars and how stars form. Well, this fuzzy little patch there is actually the Orion Nebula. That is a star-forming region in the constellation of Orion. You can see it with your eye. If you look at the constellation, you would see, if you notice the belt, look down a little bit, and you'd see a patch that looks a little bit fuzzy. It won't look as detailed as you can see in a longer image like this, but you would be able to see that as a, a little fuzzier region in the sky, and that is actually a star-forming region, and we'll look at that in a little bit more detail in the coming chapters. So in our next unit, we'll actually be looking at stars. That will be one of the things that we will actually look at as a very prominent star-forming region and the closest star-forming one of the closest star-forming regions to us. All right, questions? Yes? What was the one at the top again? Star? Uh, this is Rigel, R-I-G-E-L. Very bright blue star. Rigel and Betelgeuse are very similar in brightness. They're the two brightest stars. But Orion kind of stands out because not only does it have two really bright stars, but it's also got one, two, three, four, five, you know, the three in the belt that really stand out distinctively. So unlike a lot of constellations, you've got one bright star. Well, to the untrained eye, one bright star over here and one bright star over here with faint patterns around them look the same. So if you don't really know what the other patterns that you're looking for, Orion is kind of nice because it's got all these bright stars that stand out. Others? All right, well, let's go ahead and finish up telescopes. We had a little bit to do. We had to finish radio telescopes. And I had just gone over some of the advantages and disadvantages, as I recall. Any? That's where I had finished. I'm not seeing anyone... So I was ready to start. Oops, we don't want to go back to the beginning of telescopes. So I think I had given you this before I talked about that. Or had, had I? Yes, maybe. Anybody have that notes-wise? No? Okay, well, let's start with this just to make sure we review it. It won't hurt to review a little bit anyway. Um, the advantages, some of the advantages and disadvantages of radio telescopes... I mean, first of all, there are a different view on the universe. That's the big thing. So uh, that's the second one there I put. The other thing is that you know, our weather today, not good for an optical telescope. If you, if you were an observer uh, planning an observation run tonight, guess what? And you were right here, you'd be out of luck. It's raining, cloudy, you can't see anything. Radio telescopes, it doesn't matter. Radio waves penetrate the clouds. Weather doesn't really matter. Rain, snow, daylight, right? It's bright to us, visible light, but that doesn't mean that a lot of radio waves are coming from all over the place. So the sun emits some radio waves, but the radio waves don't scatter all over the sky like visible light does. So radio telescopes can observe right now. If we had a radio telescope out in the yard, hey, it could observe things at this moment. It would be able to see what's going on.
So you don't have to worry about weather. I say that there's some extremes. Yeah, if you're in the middle of a big electrical storm, big thunderstorm, not a very good idea to have the radio telescope running because electrical discharges will cause noise and ruin your observations. Obviously, if you're in really strong high winds, you might want to lock down your telescope. You're probably not going to be observing. You know, if you have one down in Florida during a hurricane, you're going to want to lock it down. I mean, certain extremes, but just general rain, a little bit of snow, no big deal at all for a radio telescope, which would shut down an optical telescope completely. We do get that different view of the universe, and we can look through things. Radio waves are good at penetrating a lot of things, like the dust in our galaxy. So there's a lot of dust in our galaxy. We'll see this when we get towards the end of the class in November, where we talk about our galaxy. There's a lot of dust there. And that dust is really good at blocking out the visible light. The center of our galaxy. Brightest radio source in the sky was detected with the very simplest radio telescopes back in the 1930s, easily. But you can't see it with an optical telescope. You can put the most powerful optical telescope there and you don't see anything because all of that light is blocked out by dust. However, the radio waves penetrate through so the, the center of our galaxy can be studied in radio waves, whereas it can't in visible light. And some things like hydrogen gas. Hydrogen gas makes up the vast majority of the universe. We see it sometimes around stars when it's heated up. But if it's cool, if there's no star around it to energize it, it's not giving off that red line of hydrogen. There's not enough energy to excite the electrons to make them jump, as we talked about in the last chapter. So it's invisible. Just a nice, clear gas if you don't, ex don't excite it. However, radio waves don't require as much energy, and that hydrogen gas does give off radio waves. So that gives us a way to be able to map all of this gas in the universe that we could not see with the visible part of the spectrum. Some of the disadvantages are the resolution is really, really bad on radio telescopes. If you remember, we talked about how resolution was related to the size of the telescope. Big telescope, good resolution. That's only part of the picture. It also depends on the wavelength of light you're observing. Well, for visible light, there's not really that big of a difference between blue and red. That's eh, maybe about half the wave, one's, one's about half the wavelength of the other. It's not a real big big difference. You're talking about billions of, of meters. And when you look at radio telescopes, you're talking about things that are centimeters, meters long. That's a lot more than a billionth of a meter, right? So they're very, very long wavelengths. The longer the wavelength, the worse the resolution. So when you try to look at things with a radio telescope, even though we're going to see how massively large they are, the resolution is horrible. Um, on, on individual radio telescopes. So they need to be made really big. Remember the big optical telescopes we talked about, right? 30-meter telescope, gigantic. That would be a minuscule radio telescope. That would be a tiny radio telescope by comparison. And there's also interference from radio signals on Earth, right? You use cell phones and everything else. Everything is transmitting radio waves. And if you're transmitting at the same frequency, that can cause interference. So some of the radio telescopes, and I wanted to show, if, uh, show how we get around some of this first, then I'll come into some of the radio telescopes. One of the ways we can get around the poor resolution is to make 
really large radio telescopes. Typical radio telescope here, these are about uh, maybe 100 feet across, 25, 30, 25 to 30 meters across. I don't remember the exact size, but something in that range. Again, we're talking about the size. That was the largest telescope that is in progress, was a 30-meter telescope. The ones we talked about were 10 and 12. They are dwarfed by the size of these. Small radio telescopes. These aren't big ones. These are small ones. So that would be a typical radio telescope. Would give you horrible resolution. When you point it out to the sky, you can see that the signal is coming from that point, in that area in the sky, but you can't narrow it down. You have a big swath on the sky that you're trying to say this comes from. So one of the ways we can do this is by making really big radio telescopes, but we can also use multiple telescopes at the same time. If we take multiple telescopes, as you see here, there's telescopes going out this way, this way, and coming back towards you in the image. We can observe the same object with each of them, put those signals together, and then analyze those signals. And you're now your size of your telescope is not the size of one telescope, but it's the distance between the telescopes. So if you have two telescopes that are a kilometer apart, and you observe the same object at the same time, combine those signals, do some analysis of them, you can now get an effective telescope that has a diameter of one kilometer for resolution. Right? Can't imagine, can you build a one kilometer telescope? Now, not even a radio telescope, that's a little easier to build than an optical telescope, but you can't build a one kilometer radio telescope. Whereas here we can make things much larger. Uh, this is actually an image of a radio telescope array. There are 27 radio telescopes here. The picture doesn't show all of them. There's three arms, nine going out this way, nine and nine coming towards you, out in the desert of New Mexico. So you can use all 27 of these telescopes to observe the same object, bring the signals all come to the control room, and you have a telescope that is many kilometers in size. Yeah. Is that the VLA? This is the VLA, very large array. contact and everything? Yeah. Yeah, that is, the v, that is the, what's called the VLA, or another one of those creative names, very large array, is what it means. So, yeah, there are, so there's all of these telescopes that you can use to observe together, get a great resolution. And in fact, it was designed to match the resolution of a typical optical telescope. That's how big of a radio telescope you needed, things that, was, that were many kilometers in size. This actually has four different configurations that can be put in. These telescopes are mobile. Not easily mobile, but they can actually, there's railroad tracks out there and they can be put and they can be moved to different configurations, closer together or a little bit further apart. So you can actually move it. Uh, they only move it a couple, obviously a couple, a couple kilometers per hour, so it's a real slow moving. I know they have to go across a road at one point, so you can actually get stopped while a radio, <laughs> while a radio telescope is moving across your road. Uh, take it, take it a, you know, a minute or two to get across that because of how slow they have to move. Right? You don't want to zip them there because if it tips over, it's damaged and gone. So they move really slow. Uh, they change that on a regular basis. You don't just change it for an individual observation. You change it, use it for a few months, change it again, use it for a few months. There are some advantages to having them compressed together. Even though you don't get as good resolution, you get better detail. 
you would get better uh, collecting area. You kind of fill in everything when they're closer together. You're closer to having one big telescope. When they're spread apart, you get the really high resolution, but there's a lot of gaps in your data in trying to put that image back together. So you lose some detail that way. So there are some reasons that they do that that way. But they can have telescopes that can match and now even exceed because this is one example that's done. This is the VLA. But we also have a set of 20 telescopes scattered across the United States from the East Coast to the US out to Hawaii. It's about 20 telescopes. They can all observe together. We've got a radio telescope the size of the US. And there are other put together they'll use from time to time where they'll take telescopes around the world. So you've got a telescope the size of the Earth. About as big as you can do. You know, what else can we do? Well, you could put one in space, but unless it's in a really high Earth orbit, it really doesn't make any difference putting it up like where the International Space Station is adds a couple hundred miles to it. If you've already got thousands of miles, what's a few hundred more? Next best thing would be put one on the moon. Right? Put a radio telescope on the moon, you get the diameter of the moon's orbit as the resolution. Really, really fine resolution you would be able to get at that point. So that's something that's been talked about, but it's, it is a massive undertaking to be able to construct something this large on the moon. But that would be the next uh, step in what you could do with this. But we do use it essentially now with the, the interferometry with the, the size of the Earth, and it is getting to the point where it's being used at other wavelengths too. Infrared wavelengths, a little bit in optical now. Essentially, it's easiest to do with really long wavelengths keep them configured and aligned properly. The shorter the wavelengths, the harder it is to do. So when you try to do this with optical wavelengths, you could, we could not right now use these as optical telescopes at this distance. But things that are relatively close together, you can use it for. So we're getting to that technology, and it will get there eventually that we could use optical telescopes scattered around the world and get amazing resolution optically. It's not there yet to be able to combine, combine those all at once. So some of the other radio telescopes, uh, this is the largest steerable radio telescope, not too far from us, out in Greenbank, West Virginia. And this was rebuilt after the collapse of the previous telescope and built in 2001, and it is 100 meters. It's essentially steering a football field, if you think about that. You know, end zone to end zone, 100 yards. Well, this is 100 meters, a little bit bigger than that, but bigger from end zone to end zone. That is, being that is actually steerable there. So there's the structure holding the telescope dish, the dish itself, and then this structure up here is holding the receiver, the detector. Right? What we used as a photographic plate or a CCD for optical, well, that would be the radio detector up there. So the radio waves bounce off and are detected there and then sent out to the control room. Largest telescope that's been built that can be steered. So we can turn it in any direction we want, point it up, point it over to the side. You can actually use that, that one. And that's pushing 20 years, 20 years old now since it's been rebuilt. So largest telescope that's ever been, uh, that's been made that we, can, that we can completely steer around the sky. To make anything bigger, it's a major engineering feat to do this. That's pretty good to steer a football field. And you gotta remember, that's not light. That's not steering a piece of paper around, that's, me that's all metal. So that's a rather heavy, even if you use relatively light metals, it's still a massive thing to be able to steer around. So any bigger radio telescopes, you need something better than our technology can, can hold right now to steer them, to move them. So what we use is the strongest thing we've got, the Earth. 
This is the Arecibo telescope, 300 meters, three football fields across there. This was actually built back in the 1960s, so long before we had the, the new Green Bank telescope. How do, you, how do you support something that large and massive? Well, you've got the strongest thing we know of, the Earth. You hollowed out a valley, built the valley to the specifications of the telescope, and built the telescope in the valley. The Earth holds it up. So it's just built into the valley of the Earth. Down in Puerto Rico, and then... So radio waves come in, strike it, and then come up to the detector here. You can move the detector around a little bit. As you can see, it's on all these control rods up here. You can actually move it a little bit. But pretty much all Arecibo can see is what's straight overhead. So it's got a beam, a range overhead. If something isn't or doesn't pass very close to overhead down in Puerto Rico, it can't observe it. It can't look out to the horizon on this side or this side. There's no way to be able to do that. But if something comes relatively close to overhead, and that's a lot of astronomical objects, then it is something that this telescope can observe. It used to be the largest single-dish telescope uh, until a couple of years ago when the uh, Chinese built a 500-meter telescope, half a kilometer. Same, same style, same still, still built into a valley here. We can't build, I mean, how do you steer something that is half a kilometer in size? You just can't build. That's a massive engineering undertaking to try to build something that could steer it. It's still a massive engineering undertaking to hollow this out, get this nice and smooth so that it works as a telescope, but a lot easier than you know, trying to be able to get it to be steerable. So those are the largest telescopes. And again, they dwarf that 30-meter telescope, which is amazing for optical but they dwarf that in terms of size. But in terms of resolution, this is worse than most optical telescopes, far worse. Took the VLA with kilometers in size to be able to get something comparable. So in terms of resolution, it's not as good. But in terms of uh, radiation collection, collecting radio energy, it's the best we have. All right, so finishing up radio telescopes, the radio waves, they're really the last of the ones that can penetrate the atmosphere that we can study from the Earth. So that's great that we can actually study them from here. You can imagine, you know, where would radio astronomy be if we had to put those telescopes in orbit? Nowhere. Right? How would you get anything the size of the telescopes I just showed you into orbit as well? I mean, those things are many times. Hubble's telescope, two meters, two and a half meters. These things are massive in size. So there would be ways to be able to do it, but in using interferometry, but you still have to use really little telescopes if they did not penetrate the atmosphere. Um, they do give us a completely different view. I'm going to show you that again here in just a minute as we look at other wavelengths. And we use interferometry. That's the way to really increase the resolution and make it comparable to what we see for the optical telescopes. Otherwise, the resolution is really, really bad. All right, questions before we jump out to space telescopes. All right, well, why do we put telescopes in space? I'll go back to what I covered before. There's the visible light. Most of the visible light gets down to the surface of the Earth. Big chunk of the radio spectrum does. Some of these, when you get out to these really long wavelengths, some of this is undetectable to us. How do you detect a radio wave that's a kilometer long? Imagine your telescope's got to be a lot bigger than your, bigger than your wavelengths to be able to detect it. 
So a lot of these are actually undetectable, but a lot of this in the few centimeters to few meter range is definitely detectable from the surface of the Earth. However, if we want to look at X-rays, gamma rays, they're all over here. We don't see them. Ultraviolet, little tiny bit gets through, but most of that gets blocked by the uh, atmosphere. Infrared, infrared is this kind of section right here. Some gets through pretty well, some gets through not so well at all. It depends on a lot on exactly what the infrared, what part of the infrared spectrum you're doing. Some can be observed from Earth, some cannot. So why do we put telescopes in space? And again, it's because it gives us a view. We can't study what do things look like in the x-rays. Something that emits most of its energy in the ultraviolet, we're not getting a good picture of it when we look at it in the visible part of the spectrum. If it emits mostly x-rays or gamma rays, we're not getting a good picture of it. What if it's emitting a lot of infrared? If we took our picture from today, if we took that picture that we saw of Orion and I took it in the infrared, Infrared and that Betelgeuse would be gigantically bright compared to the other stars. It would look a lot brighter than the others because it's emitting primarily in the infrared. If we did it in the ultraviolet, Betelgeuse would fade down to be a very faint star. It's not emitting much, much ultraviolet light. But the other stars in Orion, which had a blue tinge to them, would look tremendously brighter by comparison. So we do get a completely different view of the universe. And I showed you this image last time. Um, of the Crab Nebula. And we'll talk about things like supernova remnants before or later. But there's what we see in visible light. Infrared and ultraviolet may be a little similar, but there are some distinct differences to them. But x-rays, very different. In fact, you can see that there's some kind of interesting thing maybe going down there, something that going down to a point, a little disk around it. Again, we'll get into more details with these, but looking at the Crab Nebula in x-rays, gives us quite a different picture than we get in visible light. Same thing with radio waves. Radio waves seem to be concentrated in different places than the visible light. So when we just study this, which again, for a, for, until 100 years ago was all we could do, look at visible light, that was it. We didn't get a complete picture. And now we can actually study across the spectrum, get a complete image of what's going, of what's going on here. So, looking at some of these different wavelengths, infrared observatories. Infrared, in order to observe infrared, for the most part, we've got to get above the lowest layers of the atmosphere. Mainly because water vapor, water vapor is an amazingly strong greenhouse gas. It's really good at absorbing infrared light. That's what a greenhouse gas does. It absorbs the infrared. You hear about carbon dioxide. Water's many times better at absorbing infrared light. So... What that means is that if we want to observe infrared, we've got to go to a tall mountain or, in this case, launch an aircraft. This is SOFIA, which is a NASA aircraft which has an infrared telescope on it. If we put that telescope down here on Earth, we'd see very little at most wavelengths. All the water vapor in the atmosphere, especially on a day like today, right, where it's wet out there, would be blocking out that infrared. It absorbs all that infrared so we wouldn't see any. So we can use things like aircraft, we can use big weather balloons to get up high above a lot of the atmosphere, and we can also use spacecraft. Uh, Spitzer Space Telescope is one right now which observes in the infrared. Uh, IRAS was another one, infrared astronomical satellite. Just went up in space to observe in the infrared. 
Now, one of the difficulties with infrared observatories is that you really have to cool off the detectors. Remember how everything emits radiation based on its temperature. So I'm not emitting visible light, I'm reflecting visible light. I'm emitting infrared radiation. So if you looked at me with night vision goggles, I'd look really bright. Right? I'm nice and warm, I'm giving off a lot of infrared, I'm getting off a lot of infrared light. I'm not giving off a lot of visible light. Turn off all the lights, block out all the windows, and I'm invisible to you, unless you've got infrared goggles on to be able to see me. However, that means that you know, a typical CCD is emitting infrared light, whatever its temperature is. It's cooler, it's not giving off visible light, it's giving off infrared. So if your detector is giving off the light you're trying to detect, that's a problem. It would be like a CCD glowing, CCD glowing like a big spotlight. You wouldn't be able to detect much. So in order to observe things, we actually have to cool the infrared detectors. Otherwise, it's going to emit the infrared light that we're trying to detect. And if your detector, imagine your piece of film is glowing in the visible part of the spectrum, that's going to wash out anything else. It is giving off infrared light, but it's not sensitive to infrared light, so it doesn't matter. So these are super cool, things like liquid nitrogen, to cool them down to very low temperatures so that we push their emission out to much longer wavelengths, not the wavelengths we're trying to observe. A lot of the wavelengths in infrared that we try to observe would be the shorter, would be the shorter closer to the visible part of the spectrum. So those are the kind of things we've got to get this out to a much longer wavelength, get its peak. So the detector actually has to be super cooled to really low temperatures so that we can use it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to detect anything. So even telescopes put out in space need some kind of, cool, some kind of coolant with them, some kind of liquid nitrogen supply to be able to keep them at the proper temperature. You think of space as really cold, but when you're close to the Earth, you still have the sun there heating things up, so the sun heating things up, it's not as, it's still going to be cold, but not going to be the bitterly cold of the depths of space. Um, going back to optical telescopes, there is, of course, this famous one. This is the Hubble Space Telescope, launched in April of 1990. So next year, it'll celebrate its 20, 30th anniversary, 20th anniversary, about 30th anniversary out in space. It's a very small telescope by comparison to everything we've talked about. 2.4 meters, right? I talked about, I don't think I started at 2.4 meters when I talked about optical telescopes. We started about five meters, about twice the size. So why is it so amazing? Well, it's up in space. It's up above the Earth's atmosphere. And if you remember, we talked about seeing. Seeing was the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere. There are ways to get around it. Most of those have been developed even more recently. So back in 1990, this was even more amazing because you're not looking through that. You're not seeing the twinkling of stars, the, the blurring of objects by the Earth's atmosphere. So you get no interference. And you can also observe some in the infrared and ultraviolet, things that are blocked trying to get down to the Earth here. So Hubble Space Telescope can actually observe not the entire infrared spectrum or the entire ultraviolet spectrum, but those parts that are really close to the visible spectrum. <coughs> if you heard about it when it was done, there was actually an issue with it at first. When they got their first images back, they didn't look any better than ground images from, taken from Earth, which was very disappointing. 
there was actually a problem where the mirror had been ground to the incorrect shape. Not by much. I mean, it doesn't take very much to do that. It was ground just very slightly off. And that then, of course, if it's not ground correctly, that then blurs up the images. Well, no way to be able to get it back down to Earth without damaging it. Right? Even if you've taken the shuttle uh, up to get it and tried to bring it back down and land it, the jolt of coming back into orbit probably would have damaged uh, equipment. So essentially what they had to do was give it a pair of glasses, make some corrections. You know, just as we correct our vision by putting a pair of glasses on, you're, I have my glasses off, everybody's a blur, I put them on, hey, I can see everyone now. So we did that with Hubble. We, we figured out what the problem was. Oh, we're off by this much. We can make an adjustment just as you know, an optometrist look at your eyes and can tell you what prescription you need. We did the same thing. We gave Hubble Space Telescope a pair of glasses and fixed it. So very easy to, very easy to fix once we, knew what the error, once we knew what the error was. And it's been working great for almost 30 years now, giving us some of the best images that we get. And in fact, a lot of the images that we look at on our photos of the day not today's, that was taken here from Earth, but a lot of them are actually come from Hubble. We also can look at higher energy observatories. Um, X-rays, UV, X-rays, and gamma ray observatories. Pretty much to observe any of this, there's only a little bit of UV that gets down to the Earth. Otherwise, we get sunburned a lot worse than we do. It's just that little bit of UV that's really close to the visible part of the spectrum. Most of the ultraviolet is blocked out. Most of the, uh, all of the x-rays, right? All of the gamma rays are blocked out, which is kind of nice. We don't want to go get x-rayed every time we walk outside. So we do have various telescopes, such as the Ultraviolet Explorer, which was up for almost two decades, the Chandra X-ray Observatory uh, from 1999, so still going after about 20 years. The Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope is now starting its second decade, so it's finished 10 full years working on a, a second one. Uh, so these have to be up in space. The only way we can observe these parts of the spectrum is by getting up into space. So in some cases, it's a requirement. Oh, I didn't update that one. Okay. Um, some cases, it's a requirement. There's no way to observe X-rays, gamma rays, without getting up above the Earth's atmosphere. So getting into a Earth, Earth orbit, getting above the Earth's atmosphere, and able to study those. So if someone wants to study X-ray emissions from galaxies or you know, very intense high energy things like supernova explosions emitting lots of high energy waves, those are the kind of things that we need these observatories up for. I apologize on my next slide. I will tell you the, fir the first, the date is out of date. I, met, I updated that at one point, but apparently not on this version. So James Webb Space Telescope is not scheduled for launch in spring of this year. It's still a couple years off as it's gotten delayed. Most of the construction on it is done. It actually is going to the other. The rest of the information is correct, but just ignore the fact because it has not been launched and it's not going to be launched this year. I don't even think, I think it's not until 2021 now is probably the schedule. So we've got another, another year or year and a half before it's going to be launched. It is significantly bigger than Hubble, right? Hubble was 2.4 meters. We're up to six and a half meters here. Small compared to what we have on Earth, but pretty big for out in space. This is going to observe not visible, it's kind of a mixture of a visible and an infrared light telescope. It's going to be sensitive to the reds and the oranges, not the blues and the greens the red and the orange and the infrared light. So that's the way it's been designed to be able to look at these parts of the spectrum. 
And it is going to be, you can imagine, how do you launch a 6.5 meter mirror, right? Six meters, if you do as meter is about a yard, that's what, we're talking about 20 feet across. How do you launch something 20 feet across and get it up into space? It's actually foldable. If you see, it's segmented. So it's one of those segmented mirrors done in different pieces. And it's designed to fold and then to open up out in space. So once they get it out into space, then it will open up and be able to observe. So this would go in, collapse down. And then it would, it would be remotely opened once this, once this craft is in the right position, which is not going to be where Hubble is. Hubble is in Earth orbit, low Earth orbit. It's only a few hundred miles above the Earth's surface. Great, it's up above the atmosphere. Also nice in that it could be serviced very easily by the space shuttle. Shuttle could get up, that was designed with the shuttle in mind. They were kind of designed side by side so that it could get up there and service it, which it did a number of missions uh, over, the, over the years. James Webb is actually gonna orbit out beyond the moon. So it's gonna be further away from Earth than any other, well, than any other orbiting telescope that we have by far. So it's actually going to orbit beyond the moon at a stable point in the Earth, moon, sun gravitational field. So there are points where the gravity balances. Uh, we call Lagrange points. It's going to be put out there. It's sort of a stable position, so it gives it a nice stable position to be able to observe from. But it's going to have the advantage. Hubble is in a very low Earth orbit. It whips around the Earth about once every 90 minutes. So you can imagine it's close to the Earth. If you've ever seen images taken from the space station that the astronauts take of Earth, it covers a big part of their view. Same thing for Hubble. Hubble can look away, but you know, the Earth is blocking a big chunk of its view. So it has to wait till it goes around, and it's whipping around pretty quickly. This is going to be a lot further away, so the Earth is going to look a lot smaller, not blocking as much of the view. It's not going to be in a low orbit. So that is scheduled for, again, for a couple of years, from ne a couple of years uh, to be launched. Most of the work has been done. I know the Mir is actually undergone final testing, and that should be pretty much ready to go. So the Mir has been completed, and a lot of the mechanism is just waiting for clearance and funding for the launch, pretty much, to get it launched and get it up there and get it started. This is designed to be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. So Hubble's been up there 30 years, but it's really getting close to the end of its mission. It has gyroscopes that keep it pointing correctly, and I think it's down to two that work now. If you know anything about it, you really need three to point properly, so it's kind of on a, it's on a backup controls now trying to, keep it, trying to keep it pointed correctly. Once those other ones go, there's not a lot that can be done with it. So 30 years is far more than its original lifetime, so we've gotten a great deal out of it, far beyond what the expectations were, but it is coming close, and there will come a point whether it's this year, next year, or two, two, three years from now that Hubble will be done. So, can only do so much with it. And again, you know, technology has changed since that was put up in 1990, right? So that was built with 80s technology. So it's getting to the point where there's more modern equipment. And, and I shouldn't say that completely. The mirror itself isn't changed. The detectors have been changed several times. So the detectors may only be 10 or 15 years old. All right, so finishing up uh, this chapter, Again, the only two ones we can observe that we talked about previously were visible light and radio waves. That's what we can see from the Earth's surface. Little bits of others, pretty much, that's the only parts that can be observed regularly from the Earth's surface. Space telescopes give us that new view and give us the advantage that for, for visible telescopes, we don't have to look through the atmosphere. And there's future telescopes that are planned as well. So, questions?
otherwise, we will get started on our, whoops, I'll go backwards. We'll go and start on our chapter for this week, which we have two. We have chapters 15 and 16, but as I said they're a little, little bit shorter than the other chapter. So we're done with our introductory material. We actually get to talk about astronomical objects now. So our first one, sticking to the solar system, even though we're not talking about the solar system in this class, is the sun. So we want to learn about stars. Stars is going to be our unit to cover next week. And we'll start introducing stars. But we want to look at the sun because the sun is a star. It's the closest star to us. We can see it in far more detail than we can see any other star in the universe, regardless of what telescope you're looking with. Other stars look like little tiny points of light, little extremely tiny fuzzy blobs for the really large, really close stars, like Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a tremendously large star, and it's relatively close to us. You can actually see it as a fuzzy little blob through the most powerful telescopes. Most stars just look like a dot. That's all they look at. So the sun is actually one star that we can see up close. So when we see things like this, again, the details of the numbers are not important. I'm not going to test you on the mass of the sun as being some number of grams. I do expect you to know that it's one solar mass. Just like we had one astronomical unit was the distance between the Earth and the Sun, one solar mass is the mass of the Sun. Why? Because then we can compare other stars. We can say that this star is two solar masses. And to me, that's going to help you a lot more saying, oh, it's twice as massive as the Sun. If I tell you this other star has a mass of 4 times 10 to the 33rd grams, first of all, you have to remember that the Sun was 2 times 10 to the 33rd grams, and then you've got to figure out, oh, that's twice as big. So it's a lot easier. Just, just like we work with light years and uh, instead of kilometers, we tend to work with bigger units. So we refer all masses of stars relative to the sun. And we'll talk about stars that have a tenth the mass of the sun or a hundred times the mass of the sun. Makes it a lot easier than giving those values in grams. Temperatures, we usually just, we just use kelvins. We don't do one solar temperature. So sun is about 5,800 kelvin. Kind of the middle of the range uh, peaks in the yellowish-green portion of the spectrum. Luminosity, again, a massive number. 3.8 times 10 to the 26 watts. We're not going to remember that, but it's one solar luminosity. We can do the same thing with stars. This star is twice as luminous as the sun, or half as luminous as the sun, or 100 times as luminous as the sun. So we'd compare other stars to the sun. We'd also give the radius of the sun as one solar radius. So this star is two solar radii, or three, or ten, or fifty, or a hundred, or a thousand. We're comparing it to the sun. So again, the exact numbers here are not important for these, but the fact that we use them, we use the sun's numbers to compare to other stars. And when we start talking about stars next week, you'll hear me talk about this star being two solar masses, or a star that's going to be uh, half a solar luminosity or 10 solar radii. We'll use those as the comparisons, again, using small numbers instead of big. Density of the sun is actually a lot less than the density of the Earth. The sun is mostly hydrogen. Um, it is very low density overall. Its outer layers are very gaseous, so extremely low density, like our atmosphere is really low density. The inner layers are denser than anything we have on Earth. We have hydrogen gas that is compressed under incredible pressures, denser than any metal we have here on Earth. So if you get down to the center, it's a really high density. It might be 100 or 150 grams per cubic centimeter. 
Metals get up to 20s and 30s. So many times denser than a metal, but it's just hydrogen gas still under extremely high pressures. And the rotational period. Well, the rotational period depends on where you are on the sun. It doesn't matter on the Earth where you are, right? It rotates every 24 hours, 23 hours, 56 minutes. Where you are on the sun, the sun does not rotate. It's not a solid body, so it doesn't rotate like one. At the equator, it takes about 25 days for it to rotate once. If you get closer up to the poles, it takes about 32 days. So it's not a solid body. It doesn't rotate like a solid ball. Parts of it rotate faster near the equator. Parts of it near the poles rotate slower. Planets in our solar system do the same thing. A gaseous planet like Jupiter would do the same thing. Earth, it's a solid, so everything rotates at once. But things that are not solids, whether it be our sun or other stars, will rotate at different speeds depending on where you are. So a day at the equator on the sun is different than a day at the pole. And we'll see that that matters when we start looking at some of the things that go on inside the sun. So what is the sun made up of? Well, this, is, this first column tells you by the number of atoms in the sun, the percentage of the number of atoms, and the other one does the mass. No matter which way you look at it, if you do this, 99.9% .9 of the atoms in the sun are either hydrogen or helium. If you look at the mass, remember hydrogen is very light, so the other objects get weighted a little more, you're still at 98.1. Most of the material in the sun is hydrogen and helium. Almost all of it. In fact, if you pick an atom out at random, here you've got a 99.9% .9 chance that it's going to be hydrogen or helium. You've got a 1 in 1,000 chance that you're going to pick something else out of the sun. Doesn't mean the other stuff isn't there. It's just that the sun is overwhelmingly composed of these two elements. Helium, do you recognize the name helium, helios for the sun? Helium was actually discovered in the spectrum of the sun before we knew of it on Earth. It wasn't discovered until the late 1800s. We did not know of helium. You know, several hundred years ago, we had no clue of helium. Why? It, it's inert. It doesn't react with anything, so it's not reacting with other things and forming compounds. In fact, helium is the most unreactive of all of the elements, so it doesn't like to interact with anything. So it was not even discovered here on Earth, and it was named... Helium for the sun element. This is an element that we only see in the sun. And of course, later, now that we knew to look for it, we were able to find it here on Earth, but it was not actually known. Um, it was actually, we'd, when did we learn what the sun was made up of? And that was less than 100 years ago. More than 100 years ago, in fact, even back, into the 19, even back to 1925, when Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin published her PhD thesis, on the abundances in the sun, we thought the sun was made up of the same stuff we're made up of here on Earth. Right? It only makes sense. We have things like silicon and carbon and iron. Well, why is the sun going to be any different? hundred years ago, we didn't realize the difference. She actually did some calculations based on the strengths of the lines and temperatures that we were beginning to understand and found out that the sun is almost completely hydrogen. And in fact, it was so shocking and unbelieved at the time that even though you know, she believed her calculations and everything, she had to put a disclaimer in her thesis for them to accept it that this can't possibly be right. Turns out a few years later, yes, we found out that she was, she was correct. 
everything was done correctly, and the sun and most of the universe is indeed hydrogen and helium. But it is not something that was not 100, that's less than 100 years ago. We did not realize that the sun was all hydrogen and helium. Sometimes we take these things for granted today, and I say 100 years ago isn't that long ago that we just began to be able to understand something like this. So it wasn't, again, 1925, but it wasn't for a few years after that that everything was full, began to be completely accepted as more and more observations were done. All right, and we're going to look at the different parts of the sun. Most of the time I'm going to concentrate here on the exterior of the sun in this chapter and do the interior in the next chapter. But I do want to go and give you a little bit of the, inter of the interior right now, just as a general view. So this is a cutaway of the sun looking at the interior. And you know we have to try to figure out what is the interior of the sun made up of. Well, based on our studies, you know, we can't look at it any more than we can look at the interior of any other object. We can't look at the interior of the Earth or any other uh, planet or any other star or anything else, but we can use indirect methods and models to kind of study what things are about. So the interior of the sun is the core. Way down at the center, the Earth has a core, the sun has a core. Unlike the Earth, the Earth's core is made mostly of iron. Dense elements sink down to the core. The sun is so hot, it's still made up of hydrogen and helium all the way through. So the core is still hydrogen and helium. This is the only place on the sun where energy is being produced. The rest of the sun does not. The rest of the sun is actually a transport mechanism to get that energy from the core, where it's being produced, out to the outer layers. So we look at the sun as this burning ball of gas. It's really not burning in any sense that we have. We're used to thinking of burning things here on Earth. Well, in order to burn, you need oxygen. Right? The sun is out in the vacuum of space, pretty much, so there, you can't have it burn the way we think of things burning here on Earth. What you have are nuclear reactions going on at the core, fusing heavy elements into light elements, and that energy is then transported outward and released when it gets out to the outer layers. But the rest of it, other than that little small portion of the core, is all just a transport mechanism to get that energy from the center to the outside. That's the only place where energy is being created. So we, we can transmit energy in three ways. Right? You probably did this back in high school. You have radiation, convection, and conduction. Sun does not use conduction. Conduction is like grabbing the metal pan that's on the stove, grabbing the metal handle of a hot pan on the stove and burning your hand. Heat conducted through the pan right to, right to your hand. Convection really doesn't work, or conduction really doesn't work much in stars. Even though they can be pretty high density, they're such high temperatures that you don't get the concentration there that you'd need to be able to transfer things by conduction. You need almost a solid body and stars are pretty much gaseous. So you won't see me talk much about conduction in terms of stars, but we do talk about the other two. We do talk about transport by radiation in the radiative zone, which is just past the core, at what point the temperature is cooled off enough that you can't have nuclear reactions. So it's not hot enough to have nuclear reactions, but the energy is transported out by radiation, gamma rays and x-rays, traveling, getting absorbed by atoms, getting re-emitted, and that just constantly happens as those atoms, as those 
photons will slowly work their way towards the surface. If you get a little further out, the sun becomes too opaque for this. It doesn't allow the radiation to travel. And you get, get radiation or transport by con convection. Convection is the bulk motion of material. That's how you heat things, right? Something heats up, heats the bottom. That rises to the surface, releases its energy, and then cools off and sinks back down. And you'll get convective currents. So there actually are convective currents in this portion of the sun that will bring material up, releases that energy when it gets to the surface, and then the cooler material sinks back down, picks up more energy, and the process continues. So convection is actually moving bulk matter in the sun, actually chunks of matter moving, rising to the surface, releasing that energy, and then sinking back down. Radiation is just traveling by photons, po photons, particles of energy. Now, the sun, unlike the Earth, we have a surface. The sun really doesn't have a surface. We call the surface of the sun the photosphere. That's the part that we can see. But it's not a solid surface. Ignoring the fact that it is you know, almost 6,000 degrees and there's nothing that we've got that would actually survive on it, you couldn't land on it anyway. If you can imagine some you know, futuristic vehicle that could survive those kinds of temperatures, there is no solid surface on which to land. So you could explore it, but it's not solid like anything, anything else. So this photosphere is just the point where the energy is being released. There's material below it that's a little bit denser. There's material above it that gets a little bit less dense. That's just the where the energy is primarily being released. And in fact, where the uh, sun finally gets to the point that it's less dense, little density enough that the energy can actually escape from the sun. But it's not a nice, smooth surface by any sense. All it does is get denser and denser. All the sun does is get denser and denser as you move in. So there's material out beyond this, an atmosphere, which is lower density. This is just kind of a critical density where the light can now escape. But you could go deeper into it, and things just get denser and denser. Um, what we see on the surface of the sun, this is what you're used to seeing probably with images of the sun, but when you look at the sun closely, you actually see that it is the surface magnified as a whole bunch of different granules. So it's not a solid surface. These granules are tremendous in size. Right? There's North America for a comparison. These granules can be you know, much larger. <coughs> than any of, the, any of the states. Some of them can be much larger than any state. Some of them may be comparable to some of the larger states. These granules are one of the demonstrations. How do we know? I just told you that the sun transmits energy by convection. These are the top of those convective cells. Energy comes up, it's released. That's going to be hotter. It's going to look a little bit brighter. So the, these, the granules are where the energy is being released, and the darker areas between them are the material that's cooled off and it's beginning to sink back down. So in reality, these would actually bulge up. The parts would bulge up above this, what we'd see as the surface, and then the other areas would be lower. So the higher areas here look in the white. The lower-lying areas would be in the black. So again, it's not a nice, smooth surface, but that is where one of our proofs, one of our demonstrations that the sun uses convection because if it was transmitted by radiation, it should be nice and smooth. Convection, you should have, you should be able to see the top of those convective cells, those convective currents where the energy is being released. So that's where a lot of the energy 
that has started off down in the center, maybe 100,000 years ago, it can take a while for that energy to actually work its way out to the surface. All right. Now, we're doing the layers of the atmosphere. Again, I kind of breeze through the interior just to give you a background. We are going to come and look at that in a little more detail in Chapter 16. But the photosphere is the visible surface layer. Then we have two layers of the atmosphere. We have the chromosphere. Photosphere is sphere of light, right? Photo for light, so it's the sphere of light. That's where we see the light coming from. The chromosphere is the sphere of color. Chromo for color sphere, and that looks very red. It's hotter than the, it's hotter than the photosphere. It's about 10,000 Kelvin. Higher temperatures, shorter wavelengths. Why does it look red? Shouldn't it look bluer than the rest of the sun? Well, it also turns out that the red color is not from the black body emission of the sun, not because of the temperature, but it's because of the excitation of hydrogen gas. 10,000 degrees is that perfect level to excite hydrogen atoms. At 10,000 degrees, you've got just enough energy to really excite a large percentage of the hydrogen. And if you remember, hydrogen is a large percent of what's there. So when you hit that 10,000, you've got lots of hydrogen being excited, and you're going to get that red glow that we associate with hydrogen gas. So this will actually look red. It'll actually be giving off. If you look at the photosphere, you'll actually, based on the temperature, it would give off a lot of ultraviolet light, too. So you could see it in the ultraviolet but it's gonna be giving off a lot of visible light simply because it's exciting all that hydrogen gas. So it goes from about 6,000 near the surface to about 10,000 there. Then out beyond the chromosphere, the temperature begins to shoot up. So at that point, we get out to the corona, which we can see here during a solar eclipse. There is the moon blocking out the sun, and there is the corona of the sun. This gets to a really high temperature, one to two million Kelvin. Nowhere near as hot as the center of the sun. Center of the sun gets up to about 15 million, but still pretty hot. So high temperature, and what does it mean? High temperature means the particles are moving really, really fast. So those particles are moving extremely quickly in the uh, corona, but there's no heat. Remember, there's a difference between temperature and heat. Temperature is just how fast the particles are moving. Heat is the concentration of energy there. So if you have very low-density particles moving very quickly, you can have a high temperature, but not a lot of heat contained. So you know, if you wanted to heat up your coffee cup in the corona, it wouldn't do much. There's not enough particles there to be able to heat things up significantly. There's not a lot of heat content. Whereas there is, if you go further down into the sun, you'd have a lot higher heat content. The co comparison, I don't remember if I've given it to you before or, not, before or not, but I'll do it again, is a hot oven versus a boiling pot of water. Hot oven might be 400 degrees. Boiling pot of water would be about 200 degrees. You're going to be much better off putting your hand for a couple seconds in the oven not touching anything, just putting it in the oven, than you are to plunge it into that boiling pot of water. I, don't, I do not recommend that you try that experiment because that boiling pot of water has a... But even though it's half the temperature, it's denser. It's got a lot more material. So the heat content in that water is higher than the heat content in the air within the oven. 
Same thing with this. The heat content further down in the sun, when you get down to the chromosphere and the photosphere, is a lot more heat content, even if the temperature is lower. So the corona, while it's very hot, particles are moving quickly, it doesn't have a lot of heat content there because it's extremely low density, which is one of the reasons, even though it's a pretty high temperature, there's no nuclear reactions going on there. There's no energy being produced because while you have a temperature that's getting close to the point of what you need for nuclear reactions, the density is way too low. Particles are just too far apart, too spread apart. In the core of the sun, they're all pushed close together. Yeah, you, get a lot of, you can get a lot of nuclear reactions, and we'll look about that in the next chapter. But not in the corona, even though the temperatures are high, much higher. I mean, a million degrees? It's a lot more than the 6,000 we have at the surface. Now, the corona is the outer part of the sun that we can actually see, but we go beyond that with the solar wind. There is actually material escaping from the sun constantly. In fact, the sun loses every second about a million and a half tons of material on average. The sun is so massive that it can do that for billions of years and you're not even going to notice a change in the mass of the sun. That's how massive the sun is. So even if it can lose a million and a half tons of material every second, you can go ahead and convert that into grams, figure out how long it would take you to get rid of 2 times 10 to the 33rd grams at a million and a half tons a second. I don't make you do that on the homework. But you could. You could figure out how long it would take to get rid of it and it would take longer than the lifetime of the sun by far. So even over the lifetime of the sun, you're not going to change the sun's mass by even a, even a percent over that time. But we do see the effects of the solar wind. Uh, this is an image taken by one of the solar telescopes out in space. And there are some areas from this where material can actually escape. Those solar wind particles do affect us here on Earth. We can see them. And in fact, we see them in things like this, in terms of the aurora. The aurora are caused by particles from the sun that stream away. So particles from the sun stream away, they strike the Earth, they actually bounce around our magnetic field and come in where it's the weakest, where it comes into the Earth, which is close to the magnetic poles. So if you look for the aurora, you don't often get them around here, you can. If you go further south, it's even rarer, right, to see the aurora down in Georgia or Florida. Very, very rare. It takes a really intense storm. However, if you go up to Maine, Alaska, aurora are common. You're getting further north. You're getting closer to the magnetic poles. So northern Canada is very close, and you get a lot of the auroral activity there. Scandinavia, again, very far north, you will see them. You'd get a similar effect in the southern hemisphere. So very far south would work as well. But you don't normally see the aurora any place uh, at further, at southerly latitudes. So those are particles from the wind striking the atmosphere, solar wind striking the atmosphere, and exciting the atoms, causing them to glow. We have oxygen atoms in our atmosphere and nitrogen, but the primary one that gets excited are the oxygen atoms. And hydrogen glows red. If you excite oxygen atoms, they glow green. So we don't see the ones we're breathing because they're not being excited. The ones up here are being excited, and you get this greenish, shimmering, curtainy glow that you'll see in the northern sky at times. And they're most intense when there's more solar wind particles. So at times of intense solar activity, you will see more of the aurora. You can see them here if you get a really intense storm. You can actually deform 
the solar atmosphere, or sorry, just deformed, the Earth's magnetic field. And there have been times with really intense storms where you've seen the aurora here further south. Uh, most intense storms, it's actually been seen in Hawaii. You can actually see the aurora in Hawaii. That takes a massive storm. Most people live in, could live in, their Hawaii, live in Hawaii for their whole lives and would never see the aurora. You could live multiple generations without ever having seen the aurora. In fact, I only know of one case where it's been visible there, and that was back in the 1850s that we'll talk about in a little bit. But it is possible if you get a massive enough storm to do that. All right. So finishing up the first section here, no solid surface to the sun, but lots and lots of different layers from the core, uh, radiative zone, convective zone, photosphere, chromosphere, uh, corona, and then the solar wind leaving there. But you can go through that without ever hitting a solid surface. You can go all the way down. It will get denser and denser, but it's so hot it never becomes solid. So even though the density at the center is much more than anything we have here on Earth, it's such a high temperature that, it's not, that it doesn't give a solid surface. We can't view the inner layers. We have to use models. We have to use different types of models, put together predictions as to what we should see to understand what those inner layers are like. The outer layers are only visible during an eclipse. That's the only time we can see the chromosphere or the corona is during an eclipse, whether a natural eclipse or an artificial eclipse. And we can make what we call coronagraphs that would makes an artificial eclipse, blocks out the sun, and we can see the stuff around it. So you can make an artificial eclipse as well to be able to see those, but they're always there, but most of the time the photosphere is just so overwhelmingly bright that it blocks them out. And then I finished up a little bit. We talked about particles from the sun that interact with the Earth's atmosphere, giving us the aurora. All right, questions there. Otherwise, we're going to look a little bit about solar activity and cycles that go on on the sun. And first of all, we look at one of the things that Galileo discovered were sunspots. Great, because they were something imperfect on the sun. And one of the things that kind of put, a, put one of the nails in the geocentric theory's coffin. Get rid of that. Get rid of the idea that things were perfect because the sun is not unblemished. It's got these dark spots on it. They're darker regions. That means that they're cooler regions than the rest of the surface. They're not cold. They're cooler. Okay. Almost 4,000 degrees is still pretty hot for us. But it's a lot cooler than the 6,000 degrees for the rest of the surface of the sun. If you remember way back to the radiation laws from chapter 5, higher temperature emits not just what wavelengths, but also emits more energy. So the rest of the surface of the sun is emitting more energy than these sunspots. So they're going to look brighter. The sun will look brighter. The sunspots will look darker. They're only looking darker because they're relative to the surface of the rest of the surface of the sun. So they're not really cold. In fact, if you could scoop out a sunspot somehow and put it out in space away from anything else, you'd have a nice reddish-orange glow. It's a cool temperature. That's actually, 3,800 Kelvin is actually hotter than Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is closer to 3,000 degrees. So you would be able to see them. They are emitting a lot of light, but they're emitting less light than the regions around them, and that's why they look dark. Um, I talk about Galileo as, invent as discovering the sunspots. There's also the possibility, although we don't have any... Uh, 
absolute confirmation that sunspots may have actually been seen more than a thousand years before that. There are some sunspots that are so large that you can see them with the naked eye. And there are some reports from early Chinese astronomers that they may have seen some of these very large sunspots. Again, it's one of those things that's very difficult to tell because can't, we can't go back and say, when did sunspots exist on the sun? When we talk about like a supernova, like the Crab Nebula, we can say, hey, we saw a star that appeared at this point in the sky, and we can go look for the remnant of it and say, hey, yes, that is, that was a correct observation. Here, we have no way to go back and say what sunspots were on the sun at certain times of certain times. But it is possible that they've been seen. They last, some of the small ones might last only a couple of hours, come and go real quick. Um, other ones can last months. They can actually last multiple rotations of the sun around on its axis. So you could watch a sunspot move around, go off the limb, and you could watch it come back about a month, about a month or so later. They're big. I mean, you've got to put these to scale. Remember how much bigger the sun is than the Earth. You know, the Earth to scale here is you know, a little tiny bead by comparison. So some of these sunspots are actually bigger than us, bigger than our entire planet. So massive, massively sized objects. They may look small relative to the sun, but even the smaller ones, again, are going to be comparable in size to the Earth or close to the size of the Earth. Now, this number of sunspots we see isn't always the same. There are times when we see lots of sunspots. There are times when we see very few. And this is what we call the sunspot cycle, that the number of sunspots rises and falls with a period of very close to 11 years. And what that means is you have a lot of sunspots here around 1990, then you'd expect, okay, that's around the peak of the cycle, trying to average out where the peak is around 1990. You'd say about 11 years later, we'd expect to peak around 2001. And sure enough, right around 2001, there was another peak. It's not perfect. It's not always exactly 11 years. It can be a little longer or a little shorter. And in fact, if you look at this last cycle, if you go by 2001, well, we predicted that the next peak should be around 2012. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. This actually peaked. That's 2010, 11, 12, 13, 2013, 2014 it actually peaked. So I don't want you to give this time. We call it the 11-year cycle. When you average it out over centuries, it is on average. Sometimes it can be eight or nine years. Sometimes it can be 11 or 12 years. It's not a perfect, exactly 11-year cycle. But it averages out to 11, and most times it's pretty close. Usually it's within a year or so. But there are some cases where it varies because the sun is a very complex object, so there's a lot going on there. And this is related to the magnetic properties of the sun. The magnetic field of the sun is really what generates all of this, which is what causes the sunspots to come and go in this kind of cycle. In reality, we call it an 11-year cycle. It's really the magnetic cycle of the sun is 22 years long. And essentially what that means is that every 11 years, at the end of the cycle, the sun's magnetic field flips upside down. The North Pole becomes the South, the South Pole come, becomes the North. That's not the Sun flipping upside down. The Sun doesn't change, but its magnetic field flips. So in, at one point you'd have the North rotational pole up here and the South rotational pole. And at one point the magnetic North magnetic pole would be up here with it, South magnetic pole down here. The next cycle, North rotational pole still up here, but now that's the South magnetic pole. 
it flips every 11 years, or with, the, with whatever the sunspot cycle happens to be. That's not unusual. That happens here on Earth. Our magnetic field flips as well. Not every 11 years. That would really drive us crazy with compasses changing direction every, every decade or so. But on tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, we can see evidence that the Earth has done the same thing. Its magnetic field has flipped from North Pole being north to North Pole being in the south over time. So it is something that does happen elsewhere as well. And of course, as we can study the sun, we can study the Earth better because we can look at a lot more detail in it. So in reality, it's actually a 22-year cycle because this cycle would have had north, say, north-north, and this would have had north-north. This would have been north and south. So it would have been flipped, up, it would have been flipped upside down at that point. Um, and the sunspots also reverse their north and south polarity. So essentially, that's what's happening. A sunspot, like a magnet, has a north pole and a south pole. Well, when we look at sunspots, sunspots have either, they come in pairs, one is north and one is south. So they flip their polarities. What, what were north, spot, north spots become south and what were south become north. So it's essentially all related to that sun flipping upside down. So I just told you it's magnetic. How do we know it's magnetic? What kind of observations can we make? Well, this is an example of what is called the Zeeman effect. The Zeeman effect is where spectral lines split if you put them in a really strong magnetic field. Remember, you get those transitions, you have energy levels. Well, sometimes those energy levels are collapsed in on each other and that what we see as one energy level is really three, but they're all collapsed in together. You don't see them as separate unless you put them through a really strong magnetic field. The sunspots are intense magnetic fields, much stronger than an Earth's magnetic field, much stronger than the overall sun's magnetic field. So it's one evidence that they are magnetic is when we take a spectrum, and we take a spectrum right along a spot going through the sunspot here, we see one line, one line, one line. When we get to the sunspot, see how it kind of bulges out here? That means instead of having just one line, there's actually three there. You only get that in the presence of a really strong magnetic field. So we see a really strong magnetic field there, and it's associated with the sunspot. How else? Well, magnetic fields like to create little loops of things. This is a close-up image of the sun. And you can see a lot of the material coming up. There's a nice loop here. Another one here, a lot of the other ones you're seeing are only parts of the loops going up. But if you've ever played with a bar magnet and iron filings, you see that it forms a very similar pattern to this. This could be like a north and a south. You'd get a kind of bulge around that. Yeah, you get something else on the other side as well that we can't see. But again, it's, it's another piece of evidence that it's the magnetic field. What we're seeing here, those are the magnetic field lines. Magnetic field lines themselves are invisible. Right? Earth's magnetic field lines are passing through us right now. But if you put something there, like an ionized gas that the sun is made up of, and it follows along those magnetic field lines, it can illuminate them, much as iron filings can illuminate the magnetic field lines of a bar magnet. We can't see them. We can look at a magnet there. We're not, we can look all we want. We're not going to see the magnetic field lines. Put it on a piece of paper with some iron filings, all of a sudden they follow along a certain pattern based on that. And that will show you what the, uh, what, where the magnetic field is. So we can actually see them, and if you look at where the strongest spots are, what is bright here in this image would actually be dark on the surface of the sun. So they actually can connect sunspots. So these are some magnetic fields coming out of one spot, 
and maybe going around over into another. So you're going from one part of a sunspot to another here. They're connecting the sunspots. So the sunspots are a very magnetic phenomenon. When we look at the cycles, as I said, it's a 22-year cycle. So here's a lot of data we have. This goes back to the 1870s. The sunspot cycle is 22 years, but the number of sunspots goes about, comes about, about 11 years. The other thing that changes, the number of spots changes. You get more spots. And this is going back, not just looking at a couple decades worth, but this is looking at a number of cycles. So you had a lot of sunspots here, peaking here, here, and about every 11 years. The peaks aren't uniform. They're about equally spaced, but you sometimes get a really strong cycle, as we did here around 1960, late 1950s, early 19, about 1960. But a few decades before, we had a really low cycle. So the peaks change quite a bit. You can have very strong sunspot cycles or very weak sunspot cycles. The other things that can change are not only the number of sunspots change, but where they are on the sun changes. This is a map showing the south pole of the sun, the north pole of the sun, and the equator of the sun. So it's where do, the, where do the sunspots occur on the sun? Are they close to the equator? Then they're close to the central portion here. Are they closer to the poles? Then they're way up towards the top here. And we see that there's actually a pattern in this. We call this the Maunder butterfly diagram. Kind of turn your head sideways. You can see all the little butterflies flying in one direction there. What it means is that when a sunspot cycle starts, the, sun, the sunspots occur at a higher latitude. So at the beginning of a cycle here, there's a lot of sunspots up here. And as you go through the cycle, on average, they get lower and lower and lower. At the end of a cycle, you don't get many sunspots up at this higher latitude. They're down closer to the equator. So something else is changing within the sun with its magnetic field that is causing the sunspots to form at a different location. Early on, high latitude. Towards the end of the cycle, low latitude. Then you get that kind of gap in between when things reset, and you start again at a high latitude. And that pattern repeats and has repeated for you know, more than a century here in the terms of the observations that we've seen. So we change, not only do we change the number of sunspots, we change their location, and we change their polarity. Now what that means is that sunspots occur in pairs for the most part. So you get a north spot and a south spot. Which one is in the lead? Depends on which way the sun's magnetic field is pointing. So if this is north and this is south, then you might have the north magnetic pole leading and the south one following. That flips upside down at the end of each cycle. So the next, for the next cycle, it would be south leading north. Then the next cycle would be north leading south, south leading north. It would go back and forth as the sun's overall magnetic field flips. Which sunspot is in the lead flips as well. So when we said the polarity of the sunspot changes, that changes at the end of each cycle. So at the end of a cycle, at the end of one cycle, you would have had north, and north on the right and south on the left. When you start into the new group of sunspots in the next cycle, a year or so later, you would have south on the right, north on the left. They'd flip. Just like the magnetic poles of the sun flipped, where are they, which, which, which sunspot leads also flips. So where do we get this and why do we get this different magnetic field on the sun than what we had on the Earth? Well, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. I told you the rotation rate of the sun depended on where you are. 
So first of all, in order to create a magnetic field, we need some kind of moving metallic material. Well, the sun is all hydrogen and helium. But hydrogen, hydrogen gas that's been ionized can behave like a metal, and spinning can generate a magnetic field, and it does for the sun. So it generates a nice, smooth magnetic field like this, magnetic lines going into the south, coming out through the north, and then looping back, kind of making a big loop back around on either side. However, the sun doesn't rotate like a solid. So the equator takes about 25 days. The poles take about 32 days. So if you think about that and we average it out, you get about four rotations of the equator correspond to three rotations of the pole. So every three months or so, three Earth months, we would have the equator would lap the pole. It would make one more lap. It would make one more lap around. Well, as it rotates, it drags those magnetic field lines around. So the magnetic field lines get stretched out. After just a few months, do it again, three more months, you've lapped it a second time. And again, and so over the course of the year, you've lapped it about four times. These magnetic field lines start to get twisted and tangled up because of the way the sun is rotating. And that eventually causes them to buckle, form odd shapes, sort of like twisting a rubber band. Right? You keep twisting it and twisting it, and it can start to do odd little things with it if you twist it enough. And that tangles up. Like you tangle up the rubber band, you tangle up the sun's magnetic field. And eventually, little parts of it start bulging out in odd places. That's the sunspots. When that magnetic field bulges out through a certain area, that's where a sunspot group is going to form. That's where the sunspot, that's where the magnetic field is most intense. That magnetic field inhibits the flow of energy, keeps the energy from flowing as well. Okay, energy can't flow out as well. That's going to be a little cooler. That's going to be one of the sunspots. If you keep doing it long enough, you keep twisting up that rubber band, Eventually it snaps. That's what will happen to the sun. After 11, years, after 11 years of constantly twisting it, that magnetic field just gives up, snaps, and resets. And the process starts all over again. Flips upside down, process starts all over again. When it forms the new magnetic field, it's going to be in the opposite direction. All right. So that's how we believe the magnetic field forms and how it kind of works to all of this and gives us things like sunspots and other types of activity that we'll talk about uh, in the next section. There are some longer-term cycles as well, though. I talk about the 11-year cycle, but if you go back through all the data that we have, this goes back 1600, right around 1610 is when Galileo made the first observations of sunspots. Since then, uh, the sun has been observed regularly, and we count the number of suns. We've counted the number of sunspots. And now it's done daily at the time. You might have done it from time to time. And you can see there were, it was a little irregular at first in terms of the counting. We don't know whether that was irregular in terms of irregularities in the sun or if it was just irregularities in the counting that we weren't counting the sunspots on a regular, completely regular basis. Here, since then, we've had a very good uh, data received. But if we look, we see this one area called the Maunder Minimum right in here. That's not that we weren't observing. There were simply no sunspots on the sun for about 50 years. Not absolutely none. If you look, there's a few little blips where there might have been. You might have seen a sunspot. But a very long stretch there from 1650 into 1700 where we saw no sunspots. 
That affects us here on Earth. Sunspots are a sign of solar activity. The more active the sun is, the warmer it is, and the warmer it is here on Earth. So actually, this point where the sun was very calm was a relatively cold period on Earth. Sometimes in Europe, it was called the mini ice age, little ice age. It wasn't a big ice age with glaciers coming down, but it was unusually cold for decades there. And then it took time to warm it back up afterwards. So we don't know things like how often does this occur. We know nothing about sunspots going back before Galileo. And again, this data would be in question because we don't know how accurate it is, except for the fact that we know that there were sunspots back then because people saw sunspots. Galileo saw them and other people were measured, you know, decent numbers of sunspots here. But at some point it just stopped, a little before 1650, and the sun went quiet for 50 years. Now, for us, 50 years is a long time to the sun, a little blip. Right? 50 years out of four and a half billion years is nothing. But there is something, and we don't know whether this occurs every few hundred years, every few thousand years, every few million years. There are some thoughts that because our last cycle was so irregular that we might be coming down to something like this again. Again, we're not going to know until we actually get there. Is there going to be another cycle? Our last, last one was around, what is it? it was supposed to be 2012. It was closer to 2014, 2015. So we're waiting till 2026, 2027 or 2026 or so to get the next cycle. So we still got, we're, we're right now at the bottom where we're supposed to be at the bottom and we'd be, not be expecting it to start to rise for another five or six years. So some thoughts are that we won't, that it might stay, level off something like this, or we might get a really irregular cycle. We don't know. There's predictions on that, but obviously until we see it, we're not going to know what the case is. But we know it's happened once, and I wouldn't be surprised if it happens on a somewhat regular basis because the sun does have some very regular patterns to it. But again, we don't know. What was the sun? If we had sunspot numbers going back, you know, thousands and thousands of years, you might be able to see and get a better idea of how often this kind of thing occurred. All right, so finishing up here, sunspots, the cool, dark regions on the photosphere, uh, they come and go in an 11-year cycle, but the magnetic cycle overall is uh, 22 years long. And the sunspots and any other solar activity are caused by the twisting and tangling of the magnetic field. All right, questions there. All right, well, we have one more section to look at through on this chapter, and that'll finish actually chapter 15. So we only want to look at, again, some of the signs of solar activity. I talked about sunspots kind of by themselves, but there are other things that we see as well. So we see some things, you know, there's the sunspots. I'm not going to go through those again, but there's another image showing a whole bunch of sunspots on the sun. But we also get some things like the plages, which are some brighter and denser regions. So you can see the sunspots themselves, but there's also some brighter regions around them that we see that are also associated with activity with the magnetic fields. Not quite as intense, so the sunspots may be where the magnetic fields are really coming through, and these may be slightly weaker regions around them. But those occur all across the sun as well. We also get things like prominences or loops of material that are lifted off the surface. So the surface of the sun, if you look at the edge of the sun, it's not nice and smooth. There is a lot of bubbling and boiling and all sorts of things that are going on there. 
And when you get enough intensity, you get a strong enough magnetic field, you can actually lift material off the surface of the sun. And that's what we call a prominence. We usually see them against the edge of the sun because they're easiest to see against the blackness of space. But essentially, you can think of it as the magnetic field here lifting the material up. That magnetic field bulges, and as it brings itself up, it pulls material up above with it. So it's actually pulling some of the plasma on the surface of the sun up above the surface, and then it rains back down. So we get weather on the sun, just like you have here on the Earth. It's raining for us today, or good chance of raining, not right now. But as it's raining, it rains on the sun, but it rains kind of a hydrogen, a couple thousand degree plasma on the sun. But some of the material gets lifted up, and we can see it, therefore, in relief against the background of the, sun, of the space. And we can see that material, and you could watch it. Sometimes you can watch animations of these, and you'll see it kind of slowly raining back down. Now, a prominence will do this slowly. It might take days or a week to lift up that material and for it to slowly uh, go down. Things can happen faster. You hear about a solar flare. A solar flare is really just a prominence, but instead of taking a couple of days to lift that material up, it can do it within a matter of minutes or less. So a prominence is a flare is doing the same thing, but instead of just gently lifting it up and letting it rain back down, it snaps. You can imagine that magnetic field snapping up quickly and throwing that material up. So a prominence, the material really doesn't leave the sun. It goes up, little ways, rains back down, might go up a few Earth diameters and come right back down. This is actually an eruption of material off the surface. So material is actually escaping from the, from the sun. This is not exactly the solar wind. The solar wind is a slow motion of material away. This is a rapid motion of material. And in fact, if a flare happens to be directed towards Earth, then that's when we're going to get some of those most intense aurora. So that can be the most intense uh, aurora that we see. If we're going to see an aurora around here, generally it's associated with a flare. Solar flare directed towards the Earth. Now the odds of it being directed toward the Earth are pretty small for any given flare. To scale, the sun's a basketball. The Earth is a little tiny P, and let's put the sun out here in the hallway. The P is down at the end of the corridor, about 100 feet away. So in order for some, any given part of that sun to erupt directly in our direction with all the other space it can erupt to is a relatively small, small effect. However, flares do happen all the time. So there are chances that, of course, these will happen. Over, these will happen, and that we do get hit by solar flares that come in our general direction that give us enhanced aurora and can actually affect things like communications. Right? Flare, a lot of energy, that's a lot of um, electrical energy, can disrupt communication satellites and things as well if you get a big enough flare. Our magnetic field protects us from most of that. However, there are even more extreme ones that we call coronal mass ejections, which are, you know, you got a little one for a prominence, middle is flare, coronal mass ejections are the most intense. And those are when we eject a material with really high speeds and coming off lots of material. It's sort of like a super intense flare. And that's actually injecting lots of material out. And if it comes towards the Earth, again, the odds of it coming towards the Earth, still very tiny. Earth out here, little bead, or sorry, sun here, Earth way down at the end of the corridor, 
little tiny bead. You've got to come right at us in order to hit us. It happens, and in fact, it's happened in the past. In fact, solar flares, coronal mass ejections, this is the one I mentioned a little bit earlier. There was, in 1859, a coronal mass ejection that was directed towards the Earth. You know, just the chance, you know, every 100, 200 years, it'll happen. That one will happen to be directly to- directed towards the Earth. Overloads the Earth's magnetic field, disrupts it, to the point where you could see aurora in Hawaii. You don't see the aurora. Aurora in Alaska, really far north, yes. Hawaii never sees the aurora unless you really overwhelm the Earth's magnetic field. It also played havoc with the technology of the time. 1859, right? technology was not near what it is today, but it actually, that intense, elect, that intense energy, all those charged particles coming, produced currents within the telegraph wires. Intense currents, more than what they're used to doing, actually caused sparking and fires in telegraph equipment. So a coronal mass ejection today would cause, could cause significant damage to us. I mean, it could fry out communication satellites if they're not specifically hardened against, you know, this type of thing. Some of them are, you know, certainly some military ones are really heavily hardened against it. Some others are not. And, they could, and depending on the intensity of the storm, the hardening may not make any difference. Even if you get an intense enough storm, I mean, the sun is more powerful than anything we can begin to imagine here on Earth. You know, Imagine every nuclear warhead we have going off at once in one place, and you're not even hitting a fraction of the power of the sun. So, you know, in terms of what it can do, not that it's doing obviously anything intentionally to us, but it just sends off these storms randomly. And we will get, a hit, we will get hit again by, at some point uh, by a massive coronal mass ejection. This was an extremely large one back in the 1850s, but as I said, the technology was quite different at the time. So one happening now would probably cause a lot more damage. So you could fry things like electronics equipment, cell phones, right, computers, anything that was uh, active at the time could easily be fried off. Uh, you can actually go if you want. I give you the website there, and it's on the slides, uh, for the Weather Prediction Center, which actually monitors these things. The nice thing is you get a little bit of warning. The bad thing is it's not enough warning to really tell you, to, for you to do anything about it. It's not like you can go and change, oh, we have a solar storm coming, we've got to harden everything against electrical things. You get a couple days. Not a lot of time to really go do anything if there is a massive one coming, but you do get a couple days' warning uh, for a coronal mass ejection to actually, uh, before it strikes the Earth. All right, yeah? How long does it last when it strikes the Earth? Is it just like it could live, or is it... It would depend on the exact storm. I mean, it could, depending on how long that storm was going, it could take a day. It could take a day or more, depending on the massive amount, how, I mean, how long that stream of material is coming out. So it could actually, you know, if it's a quick blip, yeah, it could fry one side of the earth and the other side might be not as damaged. Whereas if it's longer, of course, and the earth is rotating and it lasts a day, then guess what? The whole earth rotates into that at one point and damage it. Plus, the magnetic field kind of buffers it around, so you sort of get hit all over. But it depends on the length of the storm. So you could get something that's really quick. You could also get something that's very long. Um, others? Otherwise, the last thing I wanted to do here, um, finishing up and talking a little bit about how the effects on the Earth climate, I mentioned this a little bit. You know, is there any connection between solar activity and the Earth's climate? One of the things that we do see is when there is low solar activity, 
not just once, but twice. Here's the Maunder minimum. But there was this other minimum that occurred called the Dalton minimum uh, back in the early 1800s where there were a couple of sunspot cycles. They still occurred, but they were really low peaks. So you got a peak, but it was really low compared to what you had before and after it. Those are both associated with relatively low temperatures. This whole period is the Little Ice Age where temperatures on average were significantly lower. This one did give us a big dip in the average temperatures. So we do see some relation between the solar activity and the climate as well, that that can affect the temperatures. When things are a little more active, you're going to get slightly warmer temperatures. We had unusually higher activity here. Temperatures went up. Temperatures went up here afterwards. And lower temperatures when we have much less activity. So the difficulty is it's also complex. There's so much going on there that it's really hard to see that you know, to show if there is a, how significant the impact from the sun is in terms of uh, everything. It's a lot of, lot of noise. You know, how do you differentiate that and see patterns relative to the zero? It's tough. If you look at them, you can maybe make some uh, hints out that the things are slightly cooler, but it's not something that's, you know, absolutely determined at this point. So finishing up, that'll finish up this chapter, and that way I can get through the last chapter easily uh, before the lab on Wednesday. So solar activity, prominences, flares, coronal mass ejections. Uh, some of them, the flares and the coronal mass ejections, are the ones that can impact us here on Earth. A severe solar flare and especially a large coronal mass ejection can cause, could cause significant damage to electronics. And is there a connection between solar activity and the Earth's climate? It's possible. We see some hints of it, but we don't have the models uh, to really show us that completely. So I'm going to finish there, and I'll get through the last chapter on Wednesday. So I think you should be fine with the homework. There's a couple questions that will, based on that last one, you can either wait until after to do them, or you can look ahead to the next chapter to go ahead and get those done. That way we get your homeworks in so I can get them done and back to you in time that you can actually have them for the exam uh, if you want to look over anything. So I'm going to leave everything else as is there. Otherwise, have a good rest of the day, and I will see you on Wednesday.